Foster said that trials could spoon... <laughs> Foster said that trials could spoon cart Colosso. Well, the cold uh, open's going to be easy to find this week, isn't it? Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 157 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I got married a couple of weeks ago and this week I'm moving house with my husband because yeah, it's going well. Glad you <laughs> clarified that. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I have been on my holidays. Where did you go? Yay. I went to Cornwall. Did you see any pixies? No, but I saw people I am related to and a baby and a dog and the sea and a massive ice cream. It was lovely. I haven't spoken in a professional capacity for 10 days, though, so I'm really going to apologise in advance for whoever has to edit this because I feel like it might be a bit of a shit joke. Apology accepted. <laughs> and I'm Jen Offord, and I'm really very sunburnt. Which is interesting, and we'll get back to why at nearly 40, Jen, you haven't learned to put sun cream on in a second. Because it didn't seem that fucking hot! <laughs> oh, but you're, you're British, you should know that that should never be trusted. But also, on the video that I'm looking at, you look the least like you've caught the sun. Is it red at the back? Ooh, I'll show oh, yeah. you yeah. the uh, colour difference. Oh yeah, I can't as you can see that. Going on. Yeah. yeah, it's it's quite painful. Later on, I chat to best-selling author Curtis Sittenfield about her latest novel, Rodham, an alternative history about Hillary Clinton, had she never married Bill. I chat to Eleanor Cleghorn about rubbish research, wandering wombs and her new book, Unwell Women. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be chatting about the Paralympics. And in Rated or Dated, we're releasing the Kraken, slash watching 1981's Clash of the Titans. I have now started using releasing the Kraken as a euphemism. I'm not going to tell you for what. <laughs> but first, I'm pretty sure they can hear our screams in space, but turns out we could find out soon. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Yes, we have enjoyed not looking at the news for a few weeks. Thanks for asking. Oh, it's so good for the brain and the soul and the heart and the eyes and the ears and the mouth. And we're back. So let's start with the story in The Guardian at the weekend where Simon Foster, the Labour Crime Commissioner for West Midlands Police, said rape and domestic violence cases in England and Wales will be among the worst hit from the growing backlog in the judicial system. Hello, depressing and not at all unpredictable news. We've really not missed you at all. Foster said that trials could soon start collapsing because of severe delays, underfunding and what he described as the mismanagement and reckless neglect of the justice system in the past decade. He added, quote, It's particularly domestic abuse, violence against women and rape cases that are going to be at serious risk. This is a real concern to me. Are we going to see a further fall in prosecution rates as a consequence of trials not remaining sustainable for all that time? To be clear, that is not a rhetorical question at the end, but it feels like one, eh? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel like there's much further for them to fall, right? His concerns are echoed by Andrea Simon, director of End Violence Against Women Coalition, who told The Guardian that the pandemic had made the existing backlog, which she described as already unacceptable, even worse. She went on, quote, This will have significant impacts on women and girls remaining engaged with the system. 
To put some context on the situation, there are currently 58,000 Crown Court cases and more than 450,000 magistrate court cases waiting to go to trial in the UK. The government's own review of how rape is investigated and prosecuted in England and Wales, which was due to be released in spring 2020, but delayed because of the pandemic, or so they said, will be released soon. Can't find a date for that, I'm afraid. So we'll definitely be revisiting this subject when that happens. Screaming pillows at the ready. Always close at hand. Well, this is a bit chirpier at least. With Portugal, this isn't, to be fair. With Portugal <laughs> now removed from the green list in the government's very clear and easily understandable traffic-like travel system, the nation have been racking their brains as to where to go for their jollies this year. Well, lads, an exciting once-in-a-lifetime opportunity has presented itself, courtesy of the European Space Agency. How about a galaxy far, far away? I hear they're very nice this time of year. We could collect our alien overlords and bring them back to sort out the mess. (laughs) Please. So the ESA is on the lookout for 26 astronauts and has extended its deadline for application after opening a new, more diverse selection process earlier this year. Speaking at the time, the ESA's Director General, Jan Vorner, said, Diversity is not a burden for us. Diversity is an asset. (laughs) Round of applause, Jan Vorner. Of the 560 people to have flown in space, only 11% have been women, and as such, women are being encouraged to apply. Additionally, the agency has opened up its first para-astronaut feasibility programme in a bid to help more astronauts with disabilities work in space. Bluebell Drummond of the Cavendish-inspiring women group said that female scientists had set up a group to offer support for women submitting applications. And the UK Space Agency's Human Exploration Programme Manager, Libby Jackson, added, don't let your subconscious or inner voice decide, let the ESA decide, because astronauts come from all sorts of different places. Who needs the Algarve? Exactly. Can I just ask, do we have, do we at Standard Issue have a Human Exploration Programme Manager? And if not, can I add it to my LinkedIn? Absolutely. Take I'm, it. I'm slightly terrified of how you're going to explore us <laughs> and what your programme will entail. So I might not sign up. <laughs> Would you like some more good news? Yeah, oh, yes. yes. Let's hear it for Christine Charlesworth's new statue of Emily Wilding Davison, which was unveiled in Epsom yesterday or Tuesday the 8th of June, depending on when you're listening. And while not wishing to retread the old statue versus sculpture ground of Newington Green, this statue looks like... Well, it looks like Emily Wilding Davison. So what we've got here is a statue of a woman by a woman that looks like a woman. Yes, please. (laughs) Win. I'm only hammering that last bit home because it does make a difference to the whole representation of women in the public sphere scenario, which, as you well know, is currently a depressing ratio. Looking at the latest stats, which come from the Public Monuments and Sculpture Association's report from 2018, Out of the 828 statues it recorded across the UK, just 174 were women and only 80 of them were named. And 15 of those who were named were allegorical, mythical or otherwise fictional anyway. But this one, Davison, she is cast seated on a beach. No, not a beach. She is cast seated... That sounds lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Is she having a magnum? She is. She's having a lovely time. It's what she fought for. She fought for a magnum. I'd fight for a magnum. 
Davison is Cass seated on a bench with the public being encouraged to sit with her. There will also be an interactive QR code so people can scan the statue on their phones and learn more. So, hooray for the Emily Davison Memorial Project, hooray for Christine Charlesworth, and hooray for this excellent statue of a fierce fighter for women's suffrage and ice creams. <laughs> <laughs> and I've another bit of good news for you, and it's also in the sort of statue-ish realm. I know, a good news pile-up. Councillors in Portrush, County Antrim, have given their approval for a memorial or blue plaque for Mark Ashton, founder of Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners. I know a lot of our listeners are fans of the film Pride because when we did an episode about it in Flicking, loads of you got in touch to chat about it. But for the uninitiated, the group did exactly what it said on the tin in 1984 and 5, raising money to provide food and support for striking miners and their families in Wales's Delice Valley and, in doing so, changed the Labour Party's stance on gay rights. Ashton, who was also a steadfast campaigner for workers' rights, was born and grew up in the Northern Irish town. He died of AIDS in 1987, aged just 26. SDLP councillor Margaret Ann McKillop said, I am looking forward to working with Mark's family to help create a lasting tribute to his immense legacy. More news next week. Will it be as good though, Jen? No. (laughs) Probably not. I promise nothing. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I had my sexism all planned and then some different sexism caught my attention. So much choice, women. What lucky, lucky objects we are. Sorry, people. I meant people. So, yeah, I was going to talk about the ongoing pension scandal in which tens and thousands of elderly female pensioners are set to miss out on life-changing payments. The BBC has revealed an estimated 200,000 female pensioners are collectively owed up to £2.7 billion after the underpayment of state pensions due to an error at the Department for Work and Pensions. But then a Twitter poll came up from Loose Women, and it ran thus. Are modesty shorts for four-year-olds a good idea? As a precaution to protect girls as young as four, who may bear all mid-cartwheel, some schools have introduced modesty shorts to uniform policy. The hashtag Loose Women would love to hear your views. I don't know that you would hashtag Loose Women because louse wearing <laughs> on daytime telly has a tendency to be frowned upon. And my views go like this. Why the fuck are you sexualising four-year-old girls? Four-year-old girls and 10-year-old girls, and 15-year-old girls, and 18-year-old, and you get my gist, should be able to wear whatever the fuck they like, whatever the fuck they feel comfortable in, while joyously cartwheeling and not having to think about whether some pervy bloke is getting his rocks off while looking at her knickers. Or her male contemporaries, who, through no fault of their own, will be fast learning that instead of teaching boys and men that women's and girls' bodies are not objects for men to ogle, shame, grope, harass, intimidate, rape... We live in a society where we just keep telling women and girls to change their actions and clothing. Don't want to upset the lads, am I right? No idea why I'm about to mention this now, by the way, but by age 14, girls drop out of sports at twice the rate of boys. Yeah, it's a fucking mystery. So, fuck modesty, a word that proper boils my piss, because no prize is for guessing what's the main judge of what is modest for women. It's misogyny, internalised and overt. And fuck modesty shorts for girls. Let's bring in compulsory perv blinkers and ball clamps for potential predators. Too harsh? 
ourselves for not teaching girls as young as four that they're responsible for boys' and men's actions, because like fuck they are. Anyway, thanks for having me, Loose Women. It's been a real <laughs> fucking pleasure. <laughs> Oh, dear God. When I was little, my sister, even though she's older than me, she was quite poorly and she also broke her leg. So it was kind of, she maybe needed a bit more care than a kid her age. So I learned to dress myself quite quickly, which my mum was really delighted with. And then once I could do it, insisted that I would just dress myself. Mm -hmm. And my mum can cite a number of occasions in which I was in a park doing a cartwheel and she went, oh, God. I'm going to need to check she's put pants on before she leaves the house again. Listener, that's now my job. <laughs> yeah, Jen, there's a tip. Always check they've got pants on. Logged. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined from America by Curtis Sittenfeld, author of Rodham, a novel out now in all good bookshops. Thank you for joining us, Curtis. Thank you for having me. I use the word novel quite pointedly there because what this is, is an alternative history about what would have happened had Hillary, that's a lot of tenses in that sentence, had Hillary Clinton not married Bill Clinton when he proposed to her. This isn't a history, it's an alternative history, which is a genre I really enjoy. And so I wanted to ask you what drew you to that and what made you see potential in this story? So there were a couple of reasons that I was drawn to this particular idea. One was that in early 2016, a magazine editor in the United States asked me if I would like to write a short story from Hillary Clinton's perspective as she was accepting the Democratic presidential nomination. And because I had written the novel American Wife in 2008, which was this loose retelling of the life of Laura Bush. You know, sometimes editors would say, do you want to write about this political thing? And even specifically, do you want to write about Hillary? And I would say no, because I thought everything that anyone could say about Hillary has been said. But when I wrote the short story, it was sort of flipping around the question, what do the American people think of Hillary Clinton? Mm -hmm. And the question was, what does Hillary Clinton think of the American people? And I actually had a lot to say. So there was that element of it. Then there was this element after the election, I was devastated. I definitely supported Hillary, was very excited to vote for her. And, you know, when Trump became president, I realized that school children, they knew Hillary was running for president. They didn't necessarily know who Bill Clinton was or that he's this sort of complicated figure in the public imagination. And so I thought, well, what if adults didn't also see Bill and Hillary as so interconnected. And in terms of the alternate history or parallel universe element, in real life, he proposed marriage twice. This is going back to the mid-70s. And she said no. And then she said yes the third time. So it seemed like such a plausible alternate reality mm. that she said no. I mean, she does meet him. They do fall in love. But she says no the third time, too and goes her own way. There's a couple of things I want to ask you in there. And I suppose let's start with, I was really surprised. It's a really mighty book. And I have to confess, I haven't finished it yet. I'm about <laughs> halfway through it. My first big surprise was that you've written it in the first person. Because that means you have to capture a voice that it's a bit like The Crown. It's both something that's very familiar to us and something that we know nothing about at all. We know Hillary Clinton very well, but we only know 
what Hillary Clinton allows us to see. So you've kind of got three structures there. You've got how you would write anyway, how you would write to sound like Hillary Clinton as we know her and how you suspect that she actually speaks. So how, how did you tackle that mammoth task? Yeah, no, it's interesting because I think that the crown in some ways is a good comparison to what I'm doing where I've undertaken this creative project that very much has a relationship to reality, but I'm not pretending, and and like I did lots of research, but I'm not pretending that this is factual. It's almost like not it did happen this way, but it could have happened this Mm. way. I certainly read, she's written two memoirs. One came out, I think around like maybe 2003, 2004, called Living History, shortly after she'd been first lady. And then there was What Happened, which came out in 2017. It was about the 2016 campaign. But actually, one of the things that was most useful to me was, I didn't listen to this when it was made, but in, in, I think, the summer of 2016, there was a podcast essentially made by her campaign as a campaign tool called With Her. And it was like interviews with her, with, you know, Bill Clinton, Chelsea Clinton, senior campaign staffers. And because it was understood from the outset that, you know, this this was a campaign tool and that she's having the conversation with someone who does, he is a kind of podcast maker. It's a man named Max Linsky, but that he that it was, you know, pro Hillary. And so from the very first minutes of that podcast, she sounds relaxed in a way that I almost have never otherwise seen her. And I felt like that was my greatest access to what I suspect is her real voice. Like I think so often in interviews, journalists would be skeptical, like skeptical at best, disrespectful at worst towards her. And of course, as any of us would, she would be kind of wary or guarded toward them. There's a lot of ways of of answering what you're asking. And some of it is like, you just have to start writing sentences and, and see if they like turn out or they, they don't turn out. But, th- but that, that... This is why I've never written a book. I do too ah. much of the thinking and not enough of that. It's a funny thing because sometimes, you know, people will say just in general for, to me as a writer, why did you make this choice? And I feel like it's like me saying, why did you put put on the shirt that you're wearing today? Like either you put on something else and it didn't quite work. So you changed or you put on that shirt and you thought, this will do. And then you just started going about your day. Yeah. The internet has changed a lot of fiction in as much as when fiction is linked to fact, be that a television program or a book. If I put the words, is Rodham, the next word that Google is going to throw up to me is true. Because people are really interested in what bits are created, be it Chernobyl, be it this book, what is created and what is actually factually true so I was I have to say I thought that as I was reading the first bits it all had a ring of truth in it to the point that I thought maybe I should google if that person actually exists because they feel real how much of it is true how much of it is an estimation of what would happen and congratulations if none of it's true because you 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 fooled me well so Basically, the book has three sections and three time frames. So it starts in the early 1970s, and then it jumps to the early 90s, and then it jumps to 2015. And the sections in the early 70s are 
based on you know reality to the degree that there's public information available like i've never interviewed any clinton insider i've never met hillary clinton i've never met bill clinton and so i sort of took information from their memoirs or from you know biographies written about them like this is how their lives were constructed at Yale and da, da, da. But then there was even, even having some of that information, you know, very rarely would you know beyond, you know, one or two sentences of dialogue that people said to each other that's part of the historical record. So it's like in the book, there's a first date and they did on their first date go to this museum and there was, there was a sort of strike and a shutdown. And I think Bill talked a security guard into letting them pick up litter in exchange for kind of going into the museum but I wasn't there and there's no video camera so almost everything they say to each other and of course you know the kissing etc like is all totally speculative so it's much more I don't know like I were to say in that first section the first section is it's almost like the broad parts or the, the structural parts are borrowed from reality and all the smaller interactions are made up. And then as the book goes on, I mean, again, it kind of has a relationship to reality, but a lot of it is also made up. It feels authentic. Yeah. Great job. It's interesting, isn't it, with Bill and Hillary, because obviously their names are forever connected. To me, what makes them an interesting couple is this is kind of twofold thing. It's number one, the responsibility that is placed on her for his behaviour, rightly or wrongly, and I would say wrongly, and also the effect that his trajectory had, how far she was behind that trajectory, how far she was responsible for it, or how much she benefited from it. So leading to a question, which is, how much did you have to put all of those feelings aside when you were writing this, or were you able to incorporate that? It's funny that you should touch on both of those questions specifically or both of those situations where I personally I agree that she's wrongly held accountable for a lot of his behavior and I do think it's interesting to ponder how much she helped him kind of ascend to the highest levels I think that for me being a novelist is embracing ambiguity or ambivalence and so on the one hand I mean you could say in parts that Rodham is very damning of or toward Bill Clinton I think you could also say there's parts where and again he's it's a fictional version of him there's parts where he comes off well and is incredibly charming and sometimes some of the early readers of the book who were my friends would as they were reading they would text me and they would say in these early sections their love and their attraction feels so convincing to me that I feel so upset that you're going to make them break up that I have to remind myself that in real life they stayed together. So, (laughs) so it's like, I don't, I'm not trying to make a kind of, you know, a point that can be reduced to one sentence like Bill Clinton should never have been president or Bill Clinton is bad or Bill Clinton is good. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's what a novel can or should do. I mean, I, I certainly have opinions about, politics and gender and ambition and I think I think it's in there and you can see it but I think I really do think I'm kind of exploring the complexity of human behavior which I you know on a daily basis I'm just kind of fascinated and baffled by human behavior 
more than I'm making mm. an argument. With her, she is the receptacle of so many feelings, even feelings that are nothing to do with her. In the lead up to that 2016 election, she became sort of a receptacle for people's feelings about all women or about all cheating men. Absolutely. And I, I think that you're a step ahead of a lot of people, I think, in recognizing that we see her as a symbol. I think a lot of people see her as a symbol, but don't recognize that they see her as a symbol. And again, like people might have very heated opinions about Hillary. But if you say to them, well, can you kind of describe her biography? Like what was her upbringing like? What what issues has she focused on for most of her career have been most important to her? And people's feelings or opinions about Hillary, I think often are not grounded in fact. Mm. Can I ask you, in that case, what you think Hillary Clinton's legacy is currently? I mean, it will change because that's the way of the world. In the 2020 election cycle, obviously there were multiple female candidates running for president. Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, uh, Kristen Gillibrand. And I think that even though... I don't think any of them won like a primary. I think that their presence was in a good way, less noteworthy. So like, I think that she kind of cleared a hurdle for women who come after her and a woman has not yet been elected president of the United States, but it seems totally plausible to me Mm. that one, one will very soon, I would think in the next 10 or 12 years. And I think that's, I almost think she took this battering and bruising and and even like there would be these articles about her in the 2016 election cycle or, you know, rumors about her or certain interviews and, and they would, it would feel like they were sexist, but, but then it was hard to pinpoint because it was almost like there was only one of her and was it Hillary specific or was Mm -hmm. it gender specific? And then I actually think when similar things happened in 2020 or, you know, in 2019 leading up to 2020, there was much more active widespread pushback against sexism in the electoral cycle directed at female candidates, because I think it was more recognizable. It was sort of like, okay, criticizing Elizabeth Warren for, you know, for example, having charged a high amount when she was a practicing lawyer or attorney. And it's like, she charged the amount that someone in her position with her education would charge. Why are we digging around in here? Like, would a man be held accountable in this mm-hmm. way? And so I think, I think that, you know, Hillary sort of had these bows and arrows that she had to take in and that it just made the process, you know, maybe a little bit easier and a little easier for the public to understand or contextualize for women coming after her. I remember in the 2020 election, it it would have been the year before, the Washington Post had a headline that said, what happens when two women are on the debate stage? And I actually tweeted in response to them, our tits explode. And it was actually, it went completely mad that tweet. It like got, I don't know, like 17,000 retweets or something because it's such a stupid question. Right, it's such right, a right, stupid question. Right, right. So you're right. Yeah, the sexism becomes more pronounced because you're like, oh, hang on. It's not, this isn't about Hillary. Yeah, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Going back to the book, I couldn't help but read it and think, 
what instances are there in my life where the road could have forked very clearly like that? And I wondered if you had a moment that you thought of when you were writing this that you thought were good or bad decisions. I think the book is sort of intended to make you think that, that it's kind of a heightened or dramatic version of something that everyone experiences. Mm. I mean, I think about jobs like there was this this isn't like you couldn't construct a novel around this but you know there was a job that I was offered in Dallas Texas in 1997 with like a weekly newspaper like an alternative weekly that I didn't accept and I instead I went to work in Boston um, for a business magazine for a couple of years but you know, I, I think like, do I have some other Texan life or, you know, who would I yeah. have met? And even so I lived, my family lived in St. Louis, Missouri for 11 years from 2007 to 2018. And then we moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in both cases, we lived in both cities for my husband's job. And And it's interesting to me to ponder how our lives are they're similarly structured in both cities. So like the people I interact with on a daily basis are different, but it's kind of like, this is my friend that I go for walks with. This is the the family whose kids are, you know, roughly the ages of my kids. And so, you know, during the pandemic, we eat pizza in the driveway together or, you know what I mean? Mm. So it does make me think because of my, age and gender and you know class and other socioeconomic factors was I destined to lead a life kind of like the one I'm leading or is it like what if I become a tv writer and I lived in LA and blah 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 I don't know I had a job I really loved I was about 39 yeah I wasn't quite 40 because I I did think oh god I could have completely ruined my life by the age of 40 but I was offered or we were all offered voluntary redundancy which is what you call a buyout in America and I made an absolute snap decision just stood up walked into the editor's office and said I'm going to take it and then I thought what am I going to do and with hindsight it was absolutely the best decision I ever made well actually knowing now what's happened to local newspapers which is where I was working I mean it totally was the right decision because I, I wouldn't have a job but yeah I do sometimes wonder how stressed how different how my life would be if I had just stayed because I wasn't bold enough to make the move. It is so interesting because it can be, you know, it can be small decisions. Like, obviously, there's the famous, you know, sliding doors, but it can Mm. be such big or small things that really put our lives on various paths and, you know, meeting or not meeting another person. And yeah. Can I ask you, Curtis, what you are working on next? Are you able to tell me? Well, sort of. Sort you, you can ask me and I can sort of tell you. Um, I, I have like some of that superstition where I think if I describe it to you, it will. It's not that I think like, oh, you'll, you'll steal the idea. It's more that it'll sound so dumb and lightweight that I'll, I'll think, is that really worth writing a book about? Or should I just? So I, <laughs> I'm going to practice my enthusiastic face, but I reckon I will be enthusiastic anyway. <laughs> so there is a novel I'm writing, which I don't know. I don't, it's, it's almost too hard for me to describe. And then, but then I just took a little break from it and started writing a short story, which I actually, this is probably such an unsatisfying answer. It's the first short story that I've ever written where I've consciously thought to myself, 
this is a Trojan horse short story. And like a reader could read 80% of it and think it's about one thing, but it's actually about something completely different. And when you get to the end, you realize that. So I really like that. (laughs) But I also, I can't tell if I've pulled it off or not pulled it off. We'll, We'll see. I have to say, as a journalist, those things are really satisfying to read, but they're always an absolute nightmare to interview anyone about. Oh, um, yeah, a, yeah. a couple of years ago, I went to interview the actress Monica Dolan, who had written a play that has a, about 20 minutes in, suddenly it occurs to you what, what's happening and it's yeah, horrifying. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to ruin that for anyone who's watching it, but it means that all the interesting sort of things it throws up, we can't talk about. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. really difficult. Rodham is out in all good bookshops now. How can people find out more about what you're doing, Curtis? Are you on social media or are you a writer <laughs> who hides from social media? I like to tweet about exploding tits. So no, I'm <laughs> Great. <laughs> I am on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm more active on, on Twitter and more more sort of myself on Twitter. I've actually been on it a little bit less lately, just sort of experimentally. And mm. I do think it's one of those things where it's like, the more you do it, the more you do it, the less you do it, the less you do it. But yeah. we'll see. Yeah, that, that, probably, that probably means I'll, I'll, you know, end this interview and go get on Twitter for the next five hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing that makes you want to go on Twitter than announcing, I'm done with it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for your time, Curtis. It's been really interesting. Yeah, thank you. I, I hope that the, the end of the book is satisfying to you. <laughs> I have confidence that it will be. <laughs> I am joined by cultural historian and author of the new book, Unwell Women, A Journey Through Medicine and Myth in a Man-Made World, Doctor, in an academic sense, Eleanor Cloakhorn. Hello, Eleanor. Hello, how are you doing? You had a personal reason why you wanted to write this book, didn't you? So this book is a history of the relationship between women and medicine that tells the story of this relationship from the very beginnings of what we would call Western mainstream medicine, so in ancient Greece, and goes right up to more or less the present to really kind of trace why so many women who experience ill health or suffer from illnesses and diseases experience medical distrust and dismissal and sort of mistreatment or inadequate treatment when they go to the doctors. And it was really inspired, this book, by my own experience of being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease 10 years ago when I was 30. And I just had my second son. While I was pregnant, he had a heart condition that was uh, quite rare And one of the only explanations for this heart condition was that I carried an immune cell that was attacking his heart. Thankfully, he was born healthy and well with a properly functioning heart. But about nine weeks later, I became really ill with a heart condition of my own. And I was ill for quite a long time and I eventually ended up in hospital. Eventually, a rheumatologist said, I think that you have an autoimmune disease and I think that the problems that are happening with your heart are being caused by your own immune system. The book was inspired by this experience, not just by being diagnosed with a a complicated, um, difficult to diagnose illness, but also because it helped me make sense of what had happened to me in my life in the last kind of 10 years before that. So from kind of my early 20s, just after university, I started to have a lot of symptoms 
that I now know are characteristic of the disease that I have called lupus. And every time I went to the doctors when I was younger to try and kind of figure out what was happening with me, I was dismissed, either told, oh, well, you're a young woman, you probably like a drink. Or one doctor said to me, is it possible that an attractive young woman such as yourself might actually be pregnant? As if, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't to figure that out for myself. Or, you know, I was given the same old story of, you know, you're probably hormonal or you know, you're on the pill and that's probably making you feel a bit crap or, you know, you're you're overly stressed. I was never referred to any further tests, never given any sort of meaningful, adequate treatment. So I just began to think, okay, yeah, maybe I am just a young and fussy woman who is paying too much attention to her body, who is, you know, worrying and and sort of ruminating too much over these small things. And then suddenly this diagnosis made sense of all that. And thought, okay, there is a reason why this was happening. So you talk about a lot of myths and tropes, basically, that that have become like really entrenched in modern medicine. I wonder if you could give me some examples of, of the kind of myths and tropes that, that you're talking about. Yeah, from the very beginnings of modern medicine, the way that medicine has understood what a woman's body is and what it's for has always been really intertwined with who women are, societally speaking, and what their function is in society. So the beginnings of modern medicine, we, we start in ancient Greece, which was, of course, very much a patriarchal society. So women and men had functions, and the primary function of a woman was to reproduce, was to be pregnant, was to bear children. Then, when the forms of knowledge we have today about bodies and illnesses weren't available, so there wasn't dissection, there wasn't x-rays, there wasn't you know the ability to take temperatures... So the way that illnesses and diseases were understood then was in terms of what people did. So it made sense for the earliest practitioners of medicine, the earliest writers of medical discourse, to think a woman is primarily reproductive. Therefore, all her illnesses and maladies pivot around her reproductive function. So from there, you have the beginnings of the myth that Everything that happens to women kind of somehow is indexed back to their reproductive capacity, which has created the impression that nothing else that happens to women is as important and the priority of reproductive medicine. Because medicine has always been, at least professionally, a very male-dominated discipline, because these ideas about women's bodies came to be as much social as they were physical. So this could lead to myths about women's bodies being primarily reproductive and also healthiest when they were performing this duty of reproducing. So I think this is probably the earliest myth that we get, that the healthiest state for a woman to be in is pregnant and keeping a home and being domestic. And that anything outside of that, so if a woman wanted to work, she wanted to think, if she wanted to participate in life in a different way, that would have a really detrimental effect on her health. And I think this is a myth that was explored in the earlier centuries and really came to prominence, say, in the 19th century, when we're really starting to tussle with ideas about women's rights. So one of the things that you write about in the book, and you've sort of touched on there, is that this idea that women's anatomy, the, the womb particularly, a woman's ability to have children basically was this kind of like powerful thing that men didn't really understand and, and sort of tried to make sense of. And it sort of is 
a bit of a superpower, isn't it? So what I think is interesting about this is that men have basically taken that and then used it against women. How's how's that happened? It's such a paradox, isn't it, to think that we hold... So we're going to go back historically and say, okay, women... Women are second class citizens, you know, they're considered to be inferior, that, you know, men are the dominant characters in in social orders, at least in patriarchal ones. But yet at the same time, women, for all their weakness, hold this exceptionally precious and powerful organ, the uterus, which is, you know, the vessel of new life and what have you. And I sometimes wonder whether it's because of, you know, the immensity of that power that there was almost more need for men to diminish and control and try to tame us as women. And you think, well, there was, you know, an enormous source of power and it's like you have to take it away from us and uh, lest we realise how powerful we truly are. (laughs) A lot of the book is talking about how and as you've said before, women in the medical world and in society and whatever became like, it all became so intertwined with their reproductive systems. And I sort of think that happens with men as as well a little bit, perhaps not in a medical sense, but in a societal way. People act as if men are almost ruled by their sexual urges. It's kind of used as an excuse for men in a lot of ways, like, well, you know, he just did whatever he did because, you know. And I wondered why is it particularly damaging the way in which that's done to women? When I was researching the book, obviously, I was looking at history of medical mm-hmm. ideas about women's bodies, and there was so much that I couldn't put into the, you know, 100,000 word book. So I had to stay really focused. But of course, this did come up, like the difference between the constitutions and, you know, body functions and sort of urges and impulses of male and female bodies. And what I kept coming up against was this idea that men have ration and, and intellect and control enough to sort of stave off diseases of the body and mind whereas women are so irrational and governed by their emotions and governed by all their sort of delicacies and sensitivities that they can't exert any control over what their body is doing and this is so interesting now in light of what you were saying because we do with there is a sort of cultural thing about you know men are ruled by their you know men can't help it this is what men do men sort of obey their bodies and biologies but because of that, we value that in a way. I mean, the great example is always, you know, how much research and funding went into Viagra and erectile dysfunction mm. versus how little is known about some really complex conditions that affect how women enjoy sex, right? So although we go, oh man, oh, they can't help it. We also value that. We mm. want to make everything okay for them mm. in terms of, you know, being sort of apologists for what their bodies need. There's almost this kind of switch around. It's like in the past, the, the example of the stoic, resilient, robust and healthy man was very linked to this masculine idea of rationality and calm. And whereas women were sick because they were so emotional. You know, the way that the messaging changes, but still what's consistent in the present is this idea that we place enormous kind of value clinically and culturally on what men's bodies need and sort of honouring what a kind of basic idea of a, of a male anatomy or male physiology is. Mm. You know, it's sexual, it needs to be strong, it needs to be, you know, respected. I think a really interesting example of this is, the you know, there have been various debates over 
decades about the possibility of a male contraceptive pill. Mm. It's never really happened, even though the kind of science and research is there to make this possible. But one, it can't get enough funding to get off the ground. And part of the reason for that is, is that it was shown in, a, in some studies that it might reduce male libido. So why go there with a male pill that would, you know, possibly reduce male libido and possibly cause mental health conditions? Well, of course, reduced libido and possible mental health conditions are part and parcel of what we are told to expect when we take hormonal contraceptives. And we just have to accept that in order to have some control over our bodies, we have to accept a certain amount of uncertainty and pain and, you know, disruption. Yeah, because I think that pain is normalized isn't it in in women's lives it's completely normalized it's like well you will have a period and you will experience pain from a very 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 young age and that's just part of life and and you'll just get on with it and eventually you'll have a child and and that's really painful and and but you'll just do it because that's what you do and like you say you know all, all of the funding and research that went into viagra and then you have women who have children there's nothing there's no physio there's no it's just sort of like mm, yeah well you know that's that's life you're gonna piss yourself forever now and it's just <laughs> not <laughs> like you know it's yeah. just not the way it should be there is a lack of research into conditions that affect women specifically a you know there's there's all sorts of evidence to suggest that people give funding to people who look like them sound like them want to find out yeah. about things that affect them etc etc Men are the people making those decisions. So men are the ones that get funding and issues that affect men get the funding. But also there is a sense that there is a sort of inability in some ways to conduct research on women, particularly of a childbearing age, because A, they can't get the insurance to do it. And B, you know, who's going to come forward as a pregnant woman, for example, and be like, sure, I'll be the guinea pig for this, you know? Is is that true? Yeah, no, there is. And it's it's really complex, this. You often hear these statistics brought up and or dates and times brought up and discussions about how women have been excluded from medical research historically, so from clinical trials and from medical research. And a lot of this comes back down to the crisis with the drug thalidomide that was mm. given to women in the 40s and 50s for to, to treat morning sickness. It was marketed as being completely safe. And it wasn't believed that thalidomide could cross the placental barrier, but it could. And part of the reason they didn't know this is because it had been rushed and there was not enough clinical testing to prove this. Now, of course, in order to protect women and their unborn babies from the effects of that were evidenced by thalidomide, women were largely exempted from then on from clinical trials and medical research, um, which obviously leads to massive blind spots in knowledge, especially around things like how different drugs are metabolised, like pain medication. You know, we, we learn that the majority of pain medication is tested only on male bodies and then usually only on white male bodies, you know, very standardised male body. We also learn that the majority of animal models that are used in in research in labs, similarly are male, male mice models, male rat models. And this is because not only has the male of the species, either an animal model or a, or a human model, been standardised as the ideal and the kind of regular example, the sort of model example historically, mm. it's also because women are more complex subjects. You know, we have more fluctuating hormones, our hormones fluctuate over our cycles, and therefore, when you design research and clinical trials for women, you have to accommodate all the different hormonal fluctuations 
which means that you have to have much more money, which means that you have much more complex testing. So even when it's been mandated and it's only been mandated since 1993 that women are ex included in funded clinical trials and medical research, even then it doesn't always happen consistently. So you're right, it leads to these massive blind spots in knowledge and it leads to the privileging of the male body as the standard. Obviously we have that lack of research so there are these blind spots. Is that why we haven't actually moved on that much from some of those myths that we talked about at the start? One of the examples you give in the book, and, and it is this is absolutely true because I have a very good friend who suffers from endometriosis quite badly mm. and, and she was told, why don't you just crack on and, and have kids? As if like that would somehow solve everything and a lot of the things that you talk about in in the early part of the book the the answer for for these women's uh, issues does tend to be like just why don't you just have penetrative sex yeah. with a man and, and, and you'll be fine which is convenient i suspect for the people oh the old marital sex cure <laughs> Is that why we are still where we are or are there, are there other things at play? I think endometriosis is the perfect example of this because endometriosis was named about a century ago. Mm. So named as a distinct disease called endometriosis. But of course, symptoms associated with endometriosis, so menstrual pain, heavy menstrual bleeding and other related symptoms have been documented since pretty much the beginnings of medical time and had always been associated with sort of very kind of feminine pathologies, sometimes even as signs of kind of mental and emotional instability. So by the time endometriosis itself is named in the 1920s as a distinct disease, it was called at that time, and I think an etiological riddle, which means, you know, they had absolutely no idea exactly what causes it. Fast forward a century, and we still don't know exactly what causes endometriosis. It's still just as perplexing. And there were all these documented cases when it was first named. And talking about, you know, how the endometrial, the tissue similar to endometrial tissue, grows in different places in women's bodies, you know, not just outside the uterus, but even in the lungs. You know, this is all documented. So it's so infuriating that why have we not dedicated big funding to really answering these questions now when we've understood that this has been completely baffling and that it's affected women's fertility and women's health more broadly for so long? And it's interesting you bring up the thing about the, you know, the, mar the old marital role in the hay cure and the, and the pregnancy cure because you know, you mentioned that your friend was told to just kind of crack on and have children. I mean, you hear this all the time now. And this was the advice that was given in the 1940s. There was one doctor even who suggested that if uh, women who had this had endometriosis happened to have a wealthy dad, that he should just, you know, give them their inheritance early so that they could just concentrate on having babies and they wouldn't need to worry about the economic downturn <laughs> and, going, and becoming career girls. So as well as pregnancy being seen as this kind of ultimate cure, you know, towing the domestic social line. It was also sort of seen as almost a punishment to women who didn't necessarily want to have children at the age of 18, who maybe wanted to have careers. You know, so it became known, especially in the sort of after the also I think kind of 60s, 70s, as the career women's disease. 
So it's like, well, you know, what do you expect? If you're going to go around menstruating constantly and not, you know, having <laughs> four kids and interrupting that, what do you expect? It's not healthy to menstruate all the time. You need to be having the kids. And all these ideas about the relationship between constant or interrupted menstruation and pregnancy and women's health, these are ancient and these were the source of, say, some of these really kind of pernicious myths. It's interesting that you said punishment because punishment is, is sort of part of it, isn't it? There's a section in your book about witch trials, for example, and how basically the women accused of being witches tended to be older and post-menopausal. And that was kind of their punishment, wasn't it, for no longer being able to have children? I think we have this sense of danger or a trepidation when it comes to women going past their sell-by date or, you know, not being useful anymore in terms of... So we see it in these awful tropes around menopause that still mm. exist in the culture. Of course, they're everywhere. You know, the jokes about menopause are everywhere. But when the 45th president was running and they had all this stuff about how Hillary Clinton couldn't possibly become leader of the free world because she was uh, menopausal or, or post-menopause and therefore likely to go nuts. She'd have a hot flush it's and just still... nuke China or something. Exactly, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still there, you know, it's still ingrained. I think more broadly, a sense of punishment does sort of hover on women's illness. Like, oh, well, if you didn't work so hard, you wouldn't be ill. Or if you'd had children earlier, it wouldn't be so difficult for you. Or if we sort of don't toe the line quite with what we're expected to do with our bodies, we get what's coming to us. I mean, your your conclusion is basically, you know, a sort of rallying cry, believe women for the medical profession, for society in general, because this is a thing. Society not believing women is a much, much bigger problem than just in terms of medicine. So... With that in mind, where and how do we start to unpick this? In, I think you're right. It's a massive societal problem. The disbelief of women, especially when they talk about something that's happened to their own bodies, is a problem that far exceeds. I mean, medicine is one of the situations mm. in which this cultural social tendency to disbelieve women when they talk about their bodies is enacted. And it's where it has really demonstrable effects on women's health and lives. And it's very easy to say, you know, oh, medical culture should believe women, should listen to women. And of course, you know, in an ideal world, doctors and health professionals would have enough time and enough money and enough resources that they could sit down and really listen to someone and meet them at face value and treat them as a human and listen to what they have to say and take it really seriously and, you know, submit them to batteries of different tests to, to explore what was wrong. But unfortunately, this isn't the health system, at least that we have in the UK, so how to go about it? You know, we we have to start thinking, OK, it's got to be a mix between dedicating more funding and more money to women's health concerns that historically have been maligned and neglected or obscured by these mythologies, while at the same time trying to create a sort of medical culture in terms of the doctor-patient encounter where anyone who goes to the doctor, but especially women, are treated as human beings. And that might come from an awareness of what sort of biases, unconscious and implicit biases might be present if a woman says, oh, you know, it hurts so much and I can't get my kids ready for school and I'm, you know, worried about paying the bills. You know, how this might impact how she's seen or how she's taken seriously. I think more awareness of that, more 
thinking about what do you do as a GP if you've only got a little bit of time? You know, what is the best way to listen? How can you actively listen? What sort of questions might be? You know, so I think there needs to be a real sort of thought. Easy to say we need to listen and we do, but we need also real strategies, real implementable strategies to also help guide, you know, our doctors and GPs and our health professionals into helping get the care that we deserve. And, you know, advocating for ourselves is hugely important, but it's not always possible. You know, it's not always possible to be super confident about what's going on in your body. All sorts of different factors might impact how you feel able to talk about what's going on. I mean, some people might internalise and ignore a pain for a long time because they feel that's really traumatic or the risk of being disbelieved is, is too harrowing for them. So we've got to create a culture where it's easier you know, diagnostically speaking, to get the information from someone that's needed so that they can go on to be really helped, diagnosed in a more timely way, given the treatment that's really adequate and treated like a human being. You know, there could be women-specific clinics that had GPs or, or consultants had a really, you know, broad awareness about all these different multi-symptomatic chronic diseases that affect women, about when the importance of women's sexuality and sexual health, you know, and that were more dedicated. So there were like spaces in which, you know, that were geared up for this and that could also take into account all the, how all those different disparities of race and class, for example, play into and impact what kind of care you get. Eleanor, your book, Unwell Women, is published on June the 10th. Where can we follow you on the socials if we want to keep up to date with what you're doing you can follow me i'm at eleanor Cleghorn, twitter and instagram so come say hi eleanor thanks so much thank you for having me it was such a joy you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we carry the flag for the sisterhood as we discuss all things women's sport lots going on this week as we get ready for the euros that's not women's sport of course but we just love sport in general around this way so i will give it a quick mention specifically i'm going to mention gareth southgate and how i continue to wish he would adopt me It's amazing how we've spent the best part of the year wishing that crowds could be back at sporting events because, you know, what is sport without the fans? Only to then immediately wish they would fuck off again the second they're invited back. And for those of you not spending their days in the cesspit that is social media, I'm predominantly talking about the ongoing issue around footballers taking the knee ahead of matches, with those displays of solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement being met with boos by a contingent of fans. I know some people have some problems with some of the political sentiments, that's a lot of sums, expressed as a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Full disclosure, I'm not one of those people. However, wherever you stand on Black Lives Matter as a movement, I think it needs to be recognised that booing a group of young men expressing solidarity with their black teammates is its never going to be a good look, guys. There's no place for politics and sport, they cry. Well, there is, and historically there has been for many, many years. I don't know, Muhammad Ali... Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the US boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games, the international boycott of South African cricket, the US women's soccer team and their legal case against US soccer. I could go on, but in more general terms, sport is a microcosm of society, so what does anyone expect? I'd also like to join the growing chorus of people pointing out that the increasingly elaborate marking of annual poppy day in sport is 
inherently political and I'd be interested to see a Venn diagram of people who go all out on that particular front and people who now want to say there's no place for politics in sport. Southgate's responses to these scenes and his unwavering support of his players has shown extraordinary leadership and so once again he gets a massive thumbs up from me and yes I'll reiterate that point about wanting him to adopt me. On to another issue, which is the upcoming Tokyo Paralympic Games and a row unfolding over attitudes towards them. The BBC apologised last week after an article it published on the BBC News site referred to the Olympics as the main games, sparking fury from Paralympic athletes, including six times gold medalist David Weir. The reference, which was subsequently removed, was described as shocking and indicative of a fundamental lack of respect. One of the voices to join them is Hannah Cockcroft, 12-time world champion wheelchair racer, who says that the lack of respect has gone much further than just this and lamented a lack of general consideration given to the Paralympics throughout the conversation around COVID and the Games postponement. She told The Telegraph Sport it was massively sidelined. Every headline, especially in the initial stages of it being postponed, was just the Olympics. As a Paralympian, you felt like screaming, we're here too, this has changed our lives too. The Olympics and Paralympics create a huge platform for women's sport as well as disability sport and echoing the sentiment that many have expressed regarding women's sport, she said that despite the huge leap forward in 2012, she now felt Paralympic sport had taken a massive step back. It's an interesting point and I think as we've said on the podcast before, the pandemic has really highlighted and entrenched inequality in certain parts of society and we've very clearly seen it in women's sport and so this feels depressingly predictable but as with everything else that's affected marginalized groups this year get angry about it show your support watch the paralympics when they're on tweet about how great the sport is rather than what quote-unquote heroes these athletes are and do the same with women's sport and hopefully the drift won't last too long i'll be back next week with more women's sport and next time i'll be chatting to former scotland international and scotland women's manager shelly kerr as the euros gets underway Welcome to Rated or Dated. In honour of Hannah's pick this week, I fashioned some battle dress out of a towel and an old brooch. (laughs) It is slightly too short, yes, but I have done that on purpose. So, Hannah, why am I barely concealing my danger zone and do you have any modesty shorts? (laughs) This week we watched Clash of the Titans and to be clear, that's the 1981 version, not the 2010 3D version. Although I'm not sure I do need to be clear, given until last week, I didn't even know that that remake existed and was apparently followed by some sequels. Something to look forward to in lockdown 43. (laughs) Directed by Desmond Davis and written by Beverly Cross, who, just to be clear, isn't a woman, but is the working name of Alan Beverly Cross, playwright and late husband of Dame Maggie Smith. Clash of the Titans fits squarely into the swords and sandals genre and is loosely based on the Greek myth of Perseus. The word loosely is carrying its fair share (laughs) of weight in that sentence. It stars Dame Maggie, Harry Hamlin, later of LA Law fame, Burgess Meredith, Ursula Andress, Sir Laurence Olivier and Tim Bigot-Smith as expositionist Maximus. But all of those names, shiny though they may be, are not the reason Clash of the Titans is remembered or even adored in some quarters. No, that's one of its producers, the man responsible for the stop-motion visual effects, Rari. 
Rari. Rari. Fucking hell. Ray Harryhausen. Clash of the Titans is the last film he worked on before his retirement, making it the final instalment of one of the most inexplicable genre of films, which combined American money, Greek myth, heavyweight British theatre talent and tiny, tiny monsters. (laughs) See also 1987's Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which until I saw Clash of the Titans again this time, had entirely morphed together with it in my brain. Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger was written and directed by none other than Sam Wanamaker, otherwise most famous for all blank faces. Yeah. Shrugs. For reviving the Globe Theatre. Oh. Well done, Sam. And thank you. Released in June 1981, Clash of the Titans made $41 million at the North American box office alone, which made it the 11th highest grossing film of the year. While it clearly nicked some ideas from Star Wars and Superman, released in 1977 and 78 respectively, and silly though it all seems now, it gained mostly positive contemporaneous reviews and was novelised by well-known sci-fi noveliser, yeah, that's a word, (laughs) Alan Dean Foster. The plot, for those who don't know, goes thus. When the baby Perseus and his mother are shoved in a box and cast out to sea by her father... The god Zeus intervenes and saves their lives because, spoiler alert, it turns out Perseus is his son. This leads to the destruction of Argos, the place, not the shop. Although if there had (laughs) been a branch of Argos in Argos, it almost certainly would have been destroyed too. That would have been a Christopher Nolan film then. (laughs) (laughs) Events start to spin out of control, putting the now grown-up Perseus in opposition with Calibos, who looks like what would happen if you took acid with Keith Richards, <laughs> dishes out riddles like some kind of super hairy Ted Rogers, and wears a ring that looks like it came from the Argos branch of Argos, <laughs> R.I.P. What follows includes Pegasus, Medusa, a clockwork owl that appears to be the result of a one-night stand between Professor Yaffle and C-3PO, <laughs> and a showdown battle with the Kraken at the now sadly gone Azure window in Gozo. Now, I mentioned the last week, but I don't know if it was cut or not. I saw this film at the cinema. My my mum quite often used to take my sister and I to the cinema on a Saturday afternoon so she could have a little sleep in a dark room. And this was one of the ones that she slept through. Had either of you seen it before? Yes, about three million times during long old summer holidays back in my childhood past. Also, can I throw in a little personal fun fact at this point? Please do. I got to interview Ray Harryhausen when I was at Metro and he was an absolute delight. He was just always astounded by how much his work had touched. Like a certain generation just absolutely Mm. adore him. And yes, I'm sure we'll get to this. It looks pretty dated now, but it was astonishing. It was and it was such a mark of my childhood. It was a real honour to chat to him. And he was a bloody lovely man. Do you know what I quite liked? When I saw that he'd retired in 1981, this was the last film he made, I looked and thought, oh, I wonder when he died. 2013. I mean, good for him. He had like 30 years of retirement. Yeah. He was literally living the dream. Jen? No, I had never seen it before. Brand new. So of the two of you, I am most interested in your reaction. Tell me, what did you make of Clash of the Titans? Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, obviously, first things first... It practically opens with a gratuitous tit, and I thought, what are we doing here? Um, (laughs) Breastfeeding, but make it sexy. 
what can I say about this? The eighties, I think that's why they did it. Doesn't that man? What's what's the Perseus, the guy that played him? Harry he Hamlin. Is, he is the most like stunningly seventies faced person I've ever <laughs> seen. Like just absolutely perfect seventies face. So tanned, so very tanned, so much hair. Quite handsome with it though, but um, yeah, not wearing a lot for most of it. What did you think um, of his acting, Jen? I'm, I'm putting acting in inverted commas. Um, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I really don't. The thing that I wrote, one of the things I wrote down there, you've already touched upon it, Hannah, is, is the owl based on R2-D2, do you yes. think? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they were definitely cashing in on a funny oh, little sidekick. Oh, I said sidekick. C3... I said C-3PO, didn't I? That shows how little I know about Star Wars. Yeah, he kind of made um, the exact same noises yeah. as R2-D2, sort of like... Yeah, <laughs> I meant R2-D2, yeah. Well, um, actually, he makes the exact same noises. Boobo the owl makes the exact same noises as the Clangers, who Ray Harryhausen really, really loved. So he just got those noises in. Is that legal? Did did he ask for permission? Is that... Can you do that? Can you Ray Harryhausen. He was massive. Can you plagiarise owl noises? Fictional owl noises? I the Clangers um, weren't owls, they were space mice. Come on, Jen. Good point. Good point. <laughs> Can you plagiarise the noise of space mice? I don't know. <sighs> yeah. Incredible. There were definitely a lot of questions. I mean, my biggest question is why, if Pegasus has wings to fly, right, why do his legs like gallop like a horse still? What's he burning that energy for? That's ludicrous. For fun. That's true, yeah. Propel- horse- propulsion, propulsion, propulsion. Horse-like qualities, just to remind us that he is still a horse. Shall we talk about Medusa, given that Mickey yes. did that great interview a couple of weeks ago? Natalie with- Haynes, she's cracking. Yeah. And thank you, she was great to talk to. And you had a bit of chat about Medusa. How do we feel she came off here? They have done her wrong. <laughs> they have done her dirty in Clash of the Titans. Literally a snake with tits. <laughs> yeah. yeah, all women are, Jen. Yeah. But she is actually a snake with tits. <laughs> Fantastic. Well done. Well done, guys. So in the real Greek myth, the real Greek myth, I realise there's all sorts of contradictions in those three words, but in the real Greek myth of Perseus and um, Andromeda and Medusa's in that. So one, like most Greek heroes, Perseus is just a bit of a dick. Like, he's not a hero. The gods just keep giving him some magic shit. Like, have a helmet, have a sword, have a shield. And actually in the Greek myth, he gets little shoes that help him go faster. And he doesn't battle Medusa in the way it is shown in Clash of the Titans. He sneaks up on her when she's not facing him and she's having a sleep and he lops her head off then. I don't remember yeah. that. Yeah, and I did cover this with Natalie, so I'll keep it brief. The actual story is like she wasn't just tupping Poseidon for fun. Poseidon raped her in Aphrodite's temple. And Aphrodite, in the way that Greek gods and goddesses do, punish the mortal and punish the woman much more than the, the god. Yeah, and gave her what appears to be like some sort of ragu sauce for blood. I was going to say, she's got her, her veins are filled with jam. She's a snake with tits with jam-filled veins. Well done, guys. I keep saying, Jen, all women are. <laughs> it's what runs through me, but... Cook me, do I not bleed jam? <laughs> The effects obviously don't stand up, but... What are you, you talking they... about? That dog <laughs> thing with the two heads? Brilliant. 
timeless. I think the monsters, because the monsters are obviously, they're not CGI, they're stop motion. And yes, they are of their time, but the monsters still look pretty cool. There's lots to enjoy going, oh, look at the way they've worked it. The green screen, though, yeah. when Poseidon's in the ocean cranking his shaft to release the kraken. That all does sound like a euphemism. Sorry, Mickey, it has to be pronounced, release the kraken. The kraken. And he's just like this. Oh, the green screen use is incredible. But I like that they loved that so much. They actually used the same scene, exactly the same scene, yeah. twice. There's also bits where, like, the coloration between what they're green screened on is so different that it just looks like someone's walking across an old photograph yeah personally i really enjoy the kind of disco ball effect that's always going on behind laurence olivier <laughs> oh bless <laughs> just like because like bolts of lightning are coming behind him but it just looks like a big disco it ball. does i have a question who's the one um after he kills medusa uh there's like a sort of i i don't know what the fuck it is he's got like a trowel for a hand Oh, Calibos. Is that what... That's who Calibos is. I started yeah. watching it last night. Um, I was quite tired, had a long journey home, and uh, I had to finish watching it today. And I feel like I wasn't really aware who the garden-implemented-handed one was. Oh, Calibos was supposed to marry Andromeda, but then he, in a, a brilliant line from Zeus, he killed all my flying horses! <laughs> so he was punished by being made by to having be a trial so ugly. And get, no, the trial for the hand comes later when uh. Perseus lops off his hand, but spares his life. And in, in possibly one of the most romantic wooing situations ever, just throws a, a severed hand at a woman and goes, you're mine, bitch, basically. <laughs> Wicked. Basically. That's how Gary proposed. (laughs) (laughs) Whose hand was it? Was it yours? Was it his? I don't know. It's now lost in an Australian river. (laughs) Shame. There are so many bits in it that are just just so stupid. When Calabos like bringing the spirit out of her and taking her off with the big bird to where he is. There's a bit where he puts a necklace on her and, and because it's like stop motion, he literally just puts it on her on her front like that <laughs> and it just stays there it, it's just so ridiculous it just stays there i particularly enjoy it when the statue's face morphs into maggie yeah, that's amazing face. i think it feels much older than 40 years right yes yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely and- but i think this is the thing i feel like when i saw it the first time i saw it it felt old i didn't think that I was and I know I was seeing it in a cinema but the truth is Newport Pangle Cinema quite often had old films on in it I don't know I don't think I realised that it was contemporaneous when I was younger I think I thought it was old then possibly because of the saws and sandals bit yeah I felt like it was about the time of Spartacus and stuff like that well, well, a lot of the, it's much later. Like Zeus and you know Laurence Olivier Maggie Smith whatever there's quite a lot there's a few like thespies in there so maybe it did feel like, yeah, maybe that's why um, it felt thespian and a bit old. because. But of the all of these, uh, like I say, Sinbad, all of them are full of like British dramatic types. It's so weird. I don't know what they were thinking of. Well, they, maybe they were thinking of money. 
And also working with Harryhausen, I guess. Yeah. I think yeah. that's the other thing that makes it feel old. It's very much his style. There's very little difference between 1981's Clash of the Titans and 1963's Jason and the Argonauts when it comes yeah. to how the stop-motion animation works. And I, like you, Hannah, had all of the films muddled in my brain. I, I couldn't have told you before watching it which monsters were and were not in Clash of the Titans. Mm. I was kind of waiting for the skeletons, but they're from Jason and the Argonauts, all of that sort of stuff. I was waiting for the woman who turns into the birds, but I think that is... The sirens. I think that's Sinbad. Sim, yeah, because yeah. Sinbad is basically Odysseus, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, I can't remember. They've all they've all morphed together in my brain. I don't feel like I've ever seen a film like it before. <laughs> Jen, the good news is there's fucking loads of them. Oh, great, because they're all <laughs> listed on the sidebar of shame when you, uh, when you rent it on YouTube. It's like, you yeah. might like this. I'm, like, I'm pretty sure I won't, but... Um... I watched it on Amazon. I rented it from Amazon, and Amazon does a thing where it puts it puts little bits of trivia up occasionally while you're watching oh, it. Yeah, and I, I like liked, that. I liked that the goofs were stuff like you can see a torch through a vulture. It's like is that your biggest <laughs> beef with this? Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's more. Yeah. There's more to it than that. And Larry Olivier, I think after watching his performance recently in the Jazz Singer, I thought he was just too understated. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It's funny. I thought, oddly, rated or dated is turning. Who could have predicted? But it's turning into the greatest misses of Laurence Olivier and the greatest (laughs) hits of Lee Roth. He's (laughs) made some very eclectic films, hasn't he, Larry Olivier? He's really, really seen some things. Apparently he was very, very poorly whilst filming the all-powerful Zeus role and kept leaning on Pat Roach to get a little bit of his stability. But, you know, Eamon, who is played by, and basically as, Mickey from Rocky, yes. was originally supposed to be John Gilgood. John Gilgood. Amazing. I mean, also, that character, Eamon, he's just supposed to be this epic poet, like, playwright, brilliant. And then suddenly he's just hanging out with the Queen, just chilling out with Cassiopeia. And I'm <laughs> like, how co- are they married? Well, how does, how's he got into that royal court so easily? It's just another blooper. I really Man liked when um, when Perseus rocks up at wherever he rocks up where Andromeda is. When he first gets there, he sort of like encounters a soldier or something, and he's a bit like, "All right, what's going on here then?" And the soldier just turns around and just goes, "Well, let me tell you." <laughs> and then, like, talks to him for like ten minutes. Exposition as Maximus yeah. in this. Exactly. Literally, he's just there. He just turns up and goes, "Right, I'm here to explain the plot." And then, I also love that it's literally like, "So where where is Princess Andromeda?" Oh, and he goes, "She's up in the hills, away from all these flies." <laughs> and, and there, there have been absolutely no flies until he goes away from all these flies. I liked the ending when um, Perseus was rewarded with some cloves, but not for long. <laughs> It is, obviously, and an, I'm going to let you ask the question first. I mean, yeah, it seems very difficult to say that it's not dated, but go on, let's let's do your best. Rated or dated? Jen, do you want to go first? Um, uh, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll start us off and say it's, yeah, it's, it's dated, isn't it? It is quite clearly dated. It has not stood the test of time, and it is ridiculous, but I'll tell you what, I had a lovely two hours. <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed. And I kept thinking about, because when uh, The League of Gentlemen made a film, they put some stop-motion animation in it. And I kept thinking about when uh, Jeff Tips keeps going, it's an homunculus. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I wanted to say that every time the Kraken came on, um, even though it wasn't an homunculus. My mates, uh, my mates call their daughter the Kraken. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> she's a bit of a tinker, shall we say. A bit of a tinker and has to be fed virgins on a regular yeah. basis. All the time, yeah. I mean, she's only two and a half, but yeah, you know. How many times has she dis- destroyed Argos? Probably quite a few. I, I don't know. I'd have to verify that. But I tell you, I went in after her and Elizabeth Duke was a mess. It was a mess. <laughs> There's actually a huge Ray Harryhausen exhibition on in Edinburgh at the moment that is called Titan of Cinema Virtual Exhibition Experience. And that's at National Galleries Scotland. And it's got all the models from Clash of the Titans. And if, oh, wow. if listening to this hasn't made you want to go and see a snake <laughs> with tits who bleeds jam... I don't know what will. <laughs> I would go to that. I would genuinely go to that. That sounds great. It'd be amazing. It's until February next year, 2022. Oh, or or like I say, take some shrooms. Look at a picture of Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> he looks, I think, Calibos looks very like Hoggle from Labyrinth. I thought he looked a bit like the one, the guy who plays Bull in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Now, we've mentioned two things there that exciting news. Mm. Watch this space. What's going on next week? It's my pick next week, isn't it? We're watching Labyrinth. There you go. Oh, my God. I'm already very excited and ready to fight you both potentially to the death, if needs be, for the outcome. I'm going to go around and watch it with my nephew. Oh, good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, remember to wear your protective blinkers to protect yourself from David Bowie's wang. <laughs> <laughs> I lost an eye once. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.